Welcome to the Anthro to UX podcast, where you will learn how to break into UX with an anthropology degree. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in user experience, you will learn firsthand how others made the transition, what they learned along the way, and what they would do differently. We will be discussing what it means to do UX research from a practical perspective and what you need to do to prepare a resume and portfolio. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Matt Arts of Anthro to UX. I'm here today with Racine Brown. Racine is about to start a new role as a senior UX researcher at Answer Lab. Uh, previous to this, or previous to this new role, was a manager of user experience research and business analysis at Radiant Digital. And in the past, served a tour in the United States Marine Corps as a platoon leader and staff officer. So, Racine, thanks for joining me today. Would you mind by telling everybody how you got interested in anthropology? Um, that'd be just fine. First of all, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Um, I got interested in anthropology at a fairly early age, uh, in some sense, even before I know what it was, and in a really different vein than I'm in now. Um, I had those time, that 1960s time life book with the human, about human evolution with, uh, you know, the different artist renderings of different hominins and the linear progression from the monkey to the man. And, you know, it's just a fascinating subject. So I went into my undergrad at Wake Forest toying with the idea of majoring anthropology to be a paleoanthropologist and study Neanderthals, which I found out is Neanderthal, not Neanderthal. Um, and yeah, I, I did become an anthropology major, but got more interested in um, cultural anthropology as I actually got into the, the major um, courses. And then I, you know, had a uh, managed to graduate from uh, Wake Forest, but uh, didn't knock it out of the park perfectly and also didn't quite know what I wanted to do. I had a sort of inner compulsion to serve. So I did that tour in the Marine Corps. Um, and, you know, as I was um, nearing the end of those four years and deciding, do I want to stay in and make it a career or do something else? You know, you know anthropology kind of kept calling to me again. Um, so I got out with the idea of eventually getting a PhD and being a professor of anthropology, um, studied, uh, decided to do a, a terminal master's degree at the University of South Carolina. Uh, when I started, that was the terminal degree in that uh, department, and it was a very solid four-field approach program, um, and I started out in cultural anthropology, um, eventually ended up concentrating in biocultural medical anthropology, um, and continued that work um, concentrating on anthropometric nutritional status, which is height, weight, skin folds, you know, measuring the body to assess nutritional status as opposed to, you know, doing assays with chemicals and things like that. And, um, you know, food security. So that was what my work in my PhD program in the University of South Florida really focused on. Um, so that's how my, I guess my passion for anthropology uh, really just stems from being interested in people and what they do and the why of what they do, you know, how, how, how your mind and personality are developed and, you know, not, it's not just bio determined. 
and it's not culture in the ether, but some combination of those um, thereof, and you know, just being a sort of a bookish kid uh, looking at the pictures of the linear progression. So that that's my my anthro passion in a nutshell. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing, and um, I think many of us, you know, will obviously share your you know, share your story in the sense that we've been inspired at a young age and, and sort of ended up following that path, even if it sometimes zigzagged a bit. In your case, you know, you did the tour um, in the Marine Corps. And so, you know, I'd be curious to know how did that influence the way you thought about, you know, going back to get an anthropology degree or how you might use an anthropology degree? Did that, that play any role? I would think a little bit. Um you know, there, there were times, um, full disclosure, I missed going to Iraq by about six months, and I knew plenty of Marines that went, have mixed feelings about that. But, um, you know, some of the training I did, a lot of it was in, some of it was in cold, um, you know, bitter cold weather. A lot of it was hot, sticky weather. So chairs and air conditioning, you know, took on a new flair for me during those four years. I like being out in nature and fresh air, but I came to a new appreciation. Um, another thing, though, is that the way the Marine Corps operates tends to be more expeditionary than some of the other services. And what that means is for deployments, um, you know, making, doing more with less. And if you look at the history of the service, um, you know, people can critique, you know, say what was good, what was bad. But the Marine Corps has an approach historically of interacting with local populations that's more developed than the other services, with the possible exception, of course, of special forces. But the idea that you have to understand whoever your enemy is, but also the local population in which they operate to uh, prosecute a counterinsurgency, for instance. Um, and then, of course, you know, General Petraeus um, later picked up on a lot of this work and wrote a book about it. But I realized that we were trained for these things in the Marine Corps. And, but at the same time, I was usually the only person I'd ever heard of who had, uh, knew, rather, that heard of anthropology. Uh, you know, a lot of people with engineering degrees in the officer corps, uh, you know, some people with more, uh, sort of practical application degrees like safety, um, you know, things like that. But I, I just got to thinking, Hey, an anthropological perspective might be useful to thinking about foreign policy. Just think about how this country interacts with people in other cultures or interacting with cultures in this country. So I think the influence that has had is, you know, really wanting to, being humble, wanting to dig in and understand, you know, other cultures for its own sake, but also providing some practical benefit, you know, to people who in cultures that don't have as much power and somehow being able to translate in real terms to those in power, to those insulated by being in a more powerful culture, hey, there's not only one way to do things, there's not only one way to live. And, you know, even putting aside all of, you know, the, the multisyllabic social theory and things, you know, that, that have their own use in learning, but just being able to tell people, you know, there are different ways of living and we could all, you know, this is a, a truism and a broad statement, but I think generally people around the world can 
use more humility in learning about each other um, and you know getting to know the other rather than simply preparing for war. You know, I, you know. On the other hand, I'm not. I think I'm more sympathetic to the national security establishment than many anthropologists, you know, having been a cog in it for four years and realizing that, you know, these, the people in the DOD, uh, be they in uniform or civilians, National Security Council, you know, they're, they're not, you know, Skeletor-esque supervillains trying to take out the world. They are operating within cultural constructs themselves. And, and, you know, to not assume all oh, these people, they don't know Bordeaux and, you know, um, Leatherman, they can't be as smart as me. No, they have just been trained in different paradigms from that 30,000 foot view. And really, you know, I think for people to learn about each other, you have to combine that 30,000 foot, you know, meta view of geopolitics, for instance, with how people live on the ground, as the cliche goes. You know, it's it's definitely an interesting uh, experience you have there. And when you when you decided to come out and and focus on medical, did the uh, did the military experience also influence that? I'm not so sure if it was. I won't nay say that it did. You know, I won't foreclose that possibility. Absolutely. Um, I think in some sense, what influenced my f- focus on medical was. The medical anthropology classes I took at Wake Forest as an undergrad, you know, just really showed me that health isn't a simpler linear equation, uh, that um, sickness isn't just a matter of virology, although that is, is a major um, factor, of course, and that people eating poorly and not exercising isn't just a matter of ill discipline and poor habits, but there are structural factors there as well. And then, um, so I think there was that perspective. And then, yeah, I, I, I took medical anthropology again at a mixed grad, school, grad, undergrad split. Uh, Toomey was the professor's name. And, and that focused a lot on the different systems of healing, you know, naturalistic, personalistic, biomedical, et cetera. And then I took Tom Leatherman's, um, biocultural anthropology class. I think it was either required or I needed some credits. And I realized, um, you know, there's a lot of overlap between, you know, biocultural perspective and medical anthropology, even though, of course, there's critical medical anthropology, which is less about what happens in the body and, and more about critical, you know, critiques of, of systems. But, you know, it's all important. And then, it talked a lot, you know, Leatherman's class talked a lot about the intersection of diet, uh, political economic factors, such as where people could live, what healthcare they could access, what they could feasibly do for a living. Uh, you know, for example, people in the Yucatan Peninsula being cut off from traditional agricultural lifeways or having that diminished because they wanted money from tourism or construction in Cancun or, uh, the Mayan Riviera, as it's now called. Um, and, you know, those, you know, I have a select local people in those tourist spaces being able to afford better food, also eating a lot more sugar, and then others being living in more marginal areas uh, geographically and not having access to good food and not having access even to all the sort of produce they might have had back in their home village. So that, 
those intersections really fascinated me. And I thought, you know, maybe this is a space where I could weigh in and, and explore, okay, you know, not only what are the, the micro and medium level socio-political, ecological factors that influence what people can eat and how they can move around in their health. But, you know, is there something I could do to improve the situation? So I think that, you know, those are the factors that really influence me to do um, biocultural medical anthropology in my academic work. So you commented there about, you know, what could you influence, which is interesting because often, there are many anthropologists who are maybe less interested in influencing and maybe more interested in documenting. So what gave you that sort of interventionist mindset? Um, you know, I don't know, probably watching He-Man too much as a child, you know, but I mean, of course, you know, through graduate school, I've, I've understood the critique of interventionism and realized you know, that unintended consequences um, can be negative and um, are a real possibility. I think in some ways, and maybe it circles back to your question about military influence. Um, and, you know, I have a tension between the critique and documenting approach in anthropology and that humility that, you know, just because you're Western educated and, you know, come from a sociocultural elite on a global scale, you know, that you're not going to just go in and kind of save the day. You know, you need to understand the local situation from people's perspectives. But, you know, in the Marine Corps, they said always have a bias for action. Uh, and, and in those, situ- you know, combat situations or um, rescue situations, if you're unsure what to do, chances are doing nothing is the worst thing you can do in that kind of situation. And others, you know, in, in terms of an intervention in a more systemic, you know, slower rolling problem, that approach might not be as effective. But in this, in the spaces where the Marine cooperates and excels, you know, bias for action is very useful. Um, and so I think, um, and, and even as silly as it sounds, even playing sports in high school, um, typically you're supposed to do something, even if you're down, if you're, if you're um, in an unfamiliar situation. So I think there's some element of enculturation of do something. Uh, and I think, you know, the academic critique of heroic interventionism is valid, but at the same time, there's a critique of academe in terms of analysis paralysis, and that is also valid. Uh, there is a place for basic science, uh, dis- really helpful discoveries can come when there isn't a pressure to discover or do this specific thing, but a broader mandate. But at the same time, there there is a real ethical quandary about documenting food insecurity, um, serious detriments to nutritional health, syndemics of infectious disease. Uh, for instance, my... Um, PhD advisor, David Helmogreen, his work dealt with the syndemic of HIV in Lesotho in South Africa, that your outcome of being infected by HIV was culturally, HIV, excuse me, was culturally mediated. But the sequelae of the disease, once one was infected, was profoundly affected by diet and other health, you know, social determinants of health factors. 
Uh, and then, if, so if you have that knowledge, is it enough to publish it in densely written journals that only other academics in your specific subfield, not discipline, subfield, are going to read? So I think that question has propelled me to at least want to make a difference uh, in a scientifically informed way. And so how much did that play into your decision to focus on UX, which, you know, coming from where you came from in your PhD program is a little bit of a leap? Sure. Um, well, it, it does. It absolutely does. I won't say that, you know, that proactive approach brought me directly from a PhD to UX. Um, it didn't. I, I worked because I worked for the VA, uh, first as a project manager and then a postdoctoral fellow in a research center. You know, through that same uh, desire to positively impact people's health, especially people who served our country. Uh, so in a, in, a, in a very proximate sense, my journey into UX was possible because my fellowship ended and my grant didn't get funded. However, once I had the opportunity to learn more about UX, it, it was an almost comic eureka moment because I determined um, that it was, you know, here is a way to make impact in real time. I think it's very hard for a career UX researcher to profoundly impact social theory or, uh, you know, become a preeminent academic, but one can make um, a positive impact for users of the, or potential users of a technology uh, in a much shorter time. Uh, for instance, even in clinical research, if um, findings of a study are validated and you know, get to the level of theory, it takes an average of 15 to 17 years for findings to be and, and um, you know analyses to appear in print in a peer-reviewed journal to making their way into clinical practice. Um, the good thing about UX research, granted, it's usually defined as a business problem, though not always, but usually defined more as a business problem than a broader societal problem. Um, and you know, someone else might be calling the tune on what you study, um, ver you know, as opposed to academia where people choose their own topic of study. But a UX researcher can make an impact um, for the better in a very short, in, in real time, compared to some other endeavors. Yeah. And potentially at a very large scale. Yes. Depending on where you work. So you haven't been in UX, you know, too many years now. Um, and so though you have a lot of research experience, transferring into UX is always, you know, it's, it's always a little bit of a battle. So what kind of, um, you know, what kind of hurdles did you encounter in your journey? You know, it's... I think the main hurdles were being perceived as you're ready to go from the gate, so to speak. Uh, because as you know, many how to break into UX research uh, articles say, and I recapitulate all my dissertation and VA research in the most UX terms possible. Um, but I think interviewers. You know, in those early years, knew that, okay, this guy has a PhD, he has research experience, but it is not about 
you know, software applications, much less any other technology. It's, uh, you know, looking about food and nutrition, doing um, consulting work for, you know, beneficent nonprofits, but not in the realm of technology. So, uh, you know, just getting that initial, you know, I had to take courses and do a lot of informational interviews to, to learn the lingo, um, so to speak, and to say card sorting instead of pile sorting. Um, and, and talk about concepts that are important in UX, um, but not so important in academe. Um, but then I think the main uh, facilitator in hurt, you know, jumping those hurdles, so to speak, was doing small startup projects where I actually did do, you know, UX research. I wasn't perfectly executed. I didn't even always get to do all that I wanted to do um, in, in terms of solving business problems, but at least I had practical things of, okay, here's an app we were de- designing and developing. I, you know, did a, a small pilot project, uh, netnography, for instance, in the target market. Uh, here's what I found and here's what I recommended. It worked out well. Uh, and, and so I, I think I started to get more traction once I sort of stumbled into those initial startup roles, but just convincing hiring, because I got some interviews with hiring managers, but just convincing hiring managers that I was ready to do UX research per se and wasn't an anthropologist who wouldn't know where to begin on doing tech-related research. So I certainly agree with you and back up that having like sort of those portfolio projects is really helpful. Um, But even sometimes before you get to talk about those projects, you know, you you do need a resume and that does need to sort of make its way through to even get to, you know, past the recruiter and to a hiring manager. And so since this is still a little fresh for you and since you've now moved on to the second job, I'd like to maybe just stay in this space for a bit. Curious to know, you know, what did you do to iterate on your early resume and has that changed this second time around? Well, um, so with Radiant, of course I have, you know, several, uh, software related projects to talk about. So I've kind of phased talking about my dissertation project as a service design and some of that, less tech-oriented consulting work out and you know, put more stuff from Radiant and the startup, you know, software projects in. Um, I think another thing, and of course, I've learned, you know, terms uh, and, and become more comfortable with them in doing work in a larger company. Um, and then, you know, I've had some help from friends just reformatting the resume uh, to be you know, more appealing and, and amenable in a, in a UX uh, or UX research shop. And another thing I think that has helped is doing some letting go. What I mean by that is that there was a period of about five years where I had a two-page resume and I still you know, tried to keep it very tight because, you know, it's, it's not academic CV. More pages does not give you credit. Um, but I just had... If, if you, you know, I treated 
my dissertation as a job because even though I didn't get paid salary benefits, it is real work. And, and I think that is a potential sea change because within academe, oh, it was just school, a, a lot of hiring managers and injury in industry, industry excuse me, uh, consider it, you know, oh, this is just your schooling. The, the classes are schooling. Um, putting together a grant proposal, doing a dissertation project, all of that is, in my view, and I'm not alone, this real work. But I've gotten to a point where I've done enough projects that are specific to UX research that it's better to focus. You know, I have all this other stuff in my LinkedIn profile. But, um, you know, my VA experience, being in the Marine Corps, doing a dissertation, very profoundly informs who I am and how I approach things. But it doesn't, I've learned it doesn't need to be the opening gamut or it doesn't have to be part of the opening gamut of how I present myself to recruiters and hiring managers because at the end of the day, they want to know what UX projects I've worked on. So those are some of the things I've, you know, I've changed my resume, tightened it up even further, and then let go of, you know, my brother uh, is sort of a high-power businessman, um, has helped me a lot along the way in terms of being more succinct uh, tailoring resumes, but it's, you know, it's tailoring resumes just generally to business. So, you know, full margins, dense, you know, 10 point font text. Um, and then, but there are other formats, you know, for UX research that are just less dense and easier on the eye. And, and you find out in resumes that not only do you have to tailor the content to what job you're applying for, in some cases, you really want to tailor the format, you know, learn about the company, talk to people working in that company or in that space. And, you know, if the traditional business dense text format isn't what they're looking for, change to what they are looking for. Yeah, no, it's, it's good feedback. And um, I guess related to that is, you know, the concept of a portfolio. And of course, you know, researchers disagree if you should have a portfolio or not, and companies either may or may not ask you for one. Did you produce one? Um, I did produce one. Uh, I did not. It wasn't required uh, when I applied for Answer Lab. It was, I opted to give them a redacted report because it was an example of real work. Um, and it was already in a fairly tight format Uh to be honest, I haven't completely updated my portfolio since I started at Radiance. And I don't know if Radiant even asked me for one. It, there, there does seem to be uh, you know, at least two camps of like, okay, is the portfolio important? It's something that's bedeviled me as a researcher because I just don't have, you know, I'd certainly try and make it visually appealing, but I just don't have the heavy visuals that a career designer would have. Um, and I, th I think as a researcher, you want, depending on the audience, you want to make your reports visual and, ex and accessible in the sense of cognitively or intellectually accessible. Um, that's something so distinct from what CAG standards and accessibility for you know disability. Though that's, you know, people I think are starting to wake up that that's important too. But, um, you know, I'm, so it, I'm 
still in process of trying to balance, make it appealing and engaging, but with enough, you know, presentation of findings and data to let uh, hiring managers know that, yes, I am a researcher and I can uh, present, you know, serious uh, work if need be. And I think in some ways, it's a conundrum for researchers presenting a portfolio, but it's also a useful exercise in being succinct and engaging uh, with stakeholders and other audience who are not researchers or certainly not academics. One thing I've, I'd say I'm still in the process of learning, but I've grown better at over the years is presenting that high level view of, you know, what are the takeaways? What's important? And then having a lot more information in my back pocket as someone gets curious and wants to do a deep dive, but not front end loading all that information and just overwhelming the audience. Yeah. And so what taught you that along the way? You know, just the experience of presenting to, you know, business stakeholders? The experience or? of presenting to business stakeholders, that businessman brother said, you know, you must be nuts. Why are you talking about bio, bioculturalism and, and political ecology and, and all of this? You know, you know, cut this, cut this, be more succinct. And, um, and even at Radiant, I've had a few times where I thought I was being succinct and been told, you know, this is just dense bullet points in a table. You need, you need to, to tighten this up and just realizing that. And I, and I think this is, this is where the re- a key learning has occurred. And even from undergrad at Wake Forest, um, they had high standards in writing an essay and support, you know, providing those supporting details explicitly. And if you're writing an essay, that's important. Um, if you're presenting to executives, business leads, you need to, those need to be accessible at request. But what, what people really want is the bottom line. What is the takeaway? You need to be able to support it. But, you know, you don't put the kitchen sink worth of all of your supporting details in, um, in academia and in many settings, that's expected. And even in, other types of deliverables like a conference presentation that need to be more succinct than uh, a simple essay. The content is still much more dense than a business presentation. And so, you know, just having to learn, you know, don't say the thing and here's my support. Just say the thing and be open to a conversation, be open to talking about and elaborating further as, you know, your audience needs. Because especially the you know different audiences need different yes. amounts of oh, absolutely. information. Absolutely. So it sounds like at Radiant you learned you know quite a bit about conducting you know research in the context of business, the business setting, and the you know the uh, sort of constraints of business uh, the, the business environment. So aside from being concise, you know, presenting clearly. Any other major takeaways from this? Um, you better be adaptable. Um, sometimes, and, and, you, and you have to be quick. Uh, Radiant works. We do different projects for different um, clients, but there's one major client in a legacy industry. And, you know, we work with their, um, at Radiant, we worked with their um network, you know, technology group. 
and they did the safe agile approach, which please don't quiz me on what safe means, but it is a way, the acronym, but it is a way of adapting the agile framework to large enterprises, which is no small feat. And so what that means is you have agile teams working as teams of teams um, on a platform. And so we did things in two-week sprints that were strung together in what's called a program increment over roughly a, a quarter, a business, you know, quarter. And, you know, you have to would have to do some sort of research activity within two weeks. Uh, so, for instance, you know, whatever's on your JIRA ticket, you have to do it within two weeks or your team looks bad. Uh, and I had, so you have to recruit, uh, get your uh, list of potential participants quickly. You have to recruit quickly. Um, you might have a day or so for data analysis. So the pressure to prioritize and spend less time is much greater um, than in academe or even in program evaluation. So it's a matter of doing things faster of living with a less comprehensive and in some cases less thorough end product than you can do in other endeavors. But my mantra is always do the absolute best you can and most thorough in the time allotted. Um, and, the, and the time for that activity is a matter of days or weeks and not months. So, you know, the pace and then just um, learning to listen to stakeholders and not and being the expert, but at the same time, being able to dial back on being the expert. For instance, there was one project I did where I talked to end users about a current you know, application that was going to be onboarded to the platform. And they were enthusiastic. They gave me a lot of insights. I presented at the uh, in a culminating session to the business lead and the IT lead. And they just weren't hearing it. They were very defensive. They're saying, we already know about all this. We have a, a, a ticketing system. And um, and it was tense enough that our product owner had to call a separate meeting. And, you know, I explained the insights further. But before I did that, I just listened to what they had to say. And I listened to the current processes. But, you know, because of I had to learn sometimes, you know, your IT and business, you know, we invite them to, Earlier sessions in design, because we used a design thinking approach to do empathy sessions, which is your contextual inquiry or other types of usual interviews, but also do a defined session, an ideate session, which is a, you know, really turns into a blend, at least in this case, between doing research and doing a workshop. And you you invite IT and business to all those, they typically show up at the end. And if they haven't been hearing what the end users said, um, and, and so, you know, I listened to them and then I made the case that, hey, you know, I'm not here to replace you or to antagonize you. This is complementary to the processes that you are using to collect feedback. And, um, you know, the design development still moved along pretty slowly, but it was, it was that you have to stay, take a step back and be flexible in the approach and building rapport and even recruiting participants um, in a, just a different way. Because out, even doing customer-facing research um, with UX, you can give incentives. You can recruit a wide pool. Uh, in some sense, we had a captive audience because it was enterprise software, 
But if people, you know, you don't have, we didn't have incentives to give people. So recruiting was just a different challenge. And so I realized that any situation within business, uh, nonprofits, academia is going to be different. And you have to be very flexible and attuned to adapting to a new situation. What did you think of the process of, you know, sharing your insights and getting buy-in and, you know, really in many ways the need to constantly stay in front of people, remind them of what you're finding, kind of convince them even to, you know, certainly to a degree? I mean, it was frustrating, but I think I kept perspective because even when I was doing my dissertation research, I had a learning curve. Uh, you know, I kind of had to figure out how to show respect for people's time in, in ways that I hadn't anticipated to, to convince them to participate. Um, and then, you know, I did a second round of data collection because that's what the research plan called for. And some people were amenable and did the second round. Some people said, even though I thought I'd explained in my own head, you know, I am coming back around. Excuse me. They said, you know, I already talked to you. Why are you bothering me again? And, you know, I had people that would agree to do it at a certain time and they wouldn't show up or, it, you know, they'd show up 30 minutes later. So I said, started sliming in 10, 15 minutes late. And then, you know, I'd have those like a couple of occasions where I did that and someone was angry because I wasn't on time. So, uh, luckily I had had experience with having friction in recruitment and having people actually participate, but I just got to, you know, realize another thing about perspective is that, you know, because it was enterprise software and the end users, you know, weren't going to make extra money or, you know, like they, they could benefit if we improved the software, but you're asking people to take time out from their day job because, you know, they're not going to want to come in on the weekend um, and not get paid extra to, you know, if these are salaried people, they're not getting paid overtime to participate. Uh, and then sometimes you had things like union rules or other parameters that we didn't anticipate as to when people could participate in research, if they could. And so, you know, it goes back to humility, taking a few deep breaths when you're frustrated um, and, and just talk, talking to stakeholders uh, or whoever we need to, to figure out, okay, how can we make this happen? And at Radiant, were you, were you on a team of UX researchers or were you the, the first hire in that role? Yes, uh, just all around. Um, because I was, I think they had had a UX researcher that had left the company a little while before. So at the time I was hired, I was the only UX researcher, dedicated UX researcher who did it full time. We had some designers that knew something about research and occasionally they would take on projects, um, the research phase as well as the design phase, but I was the only full time UX researcher. Uh, eventually, uh, they put me uh, administratively in charge of a couple of business analysts. Um, and so that was interesting learning about a matrix organization in terms of being in charge of people's performance and their career development in some sense, but them definitely reporting to someone else when it came to project work. Um, so that was interesting. And then, so I'd say for about a little over a year, I was the only full-time UX researcher 
And then we did a very rapid hiring of a team. I think at its biggest, it was about nine researchers. Um, so we did, we did a rapid hiring and I was, it was still matrix because, um, you know, I was administratively in charge, did the training, uh, performance evaluations, things like that. But at the same time, and, and we were all, you know, unlike with the two business analysts, we were all on the same project, uh, like the same, you know, team for that big legacy industry client. But we did different projects within that project. And, you know, when they were doing work research on the initiatives, they would report to uh, the UX architect for that initiative for like what, for instance, there was a time when the UX architect called me and some of the new researchers working on his initiative into a meeting and said, you know, we need user flows. You know, I hadn't really been producing user flows very much. Uh, it had been more of a split between designers getting documentation and I'm presenting um, journey maps and empathy maps about the experience. But, you know, he told them, uh, we need user flows because the designers need to see the architecture, how it goes. Um, and so they produced user flows. But then and other, initi- other initiatives didn't ask for that. Uh, and then likewise, our product owner and scrum master would ask everyone, you know, in a more flat organizational approach, you know, what are you working on? What are you, um, what are your blockers? And at the same time, I was training the team, managing and leading them. I was also doing frontline you know, research myself on some other you know, projects within that same team. So it's interesting because, you know, you sort of start as a team of one. You eventually hire and you're leading, uh, which is a nice opportunity. But I'm more so focused on the first part of that because as a team of one, you really, you know, you need to teach yourself some things like you mentioned, you know, journey maps, user flows, right? So you first need to make sure you sort of understand these things, be able to, to produce them. Then you need to train others in them and you need to really stay abreast of the sort of changes of, of really of the discipline. So what were you doing, you know, to, to stay on top of this all? Um, a lot of combing on LinkedIn. Um, I have a lot of UX researchers in my network and on my feed. Um, going to Nielsen Norman Group, um, you know, for some of the resources they have. And, and then another thing, just flat out looking at templates. Um, I really like the Miro template for journey maps. Uh, you know, there are other, there are other, it is not the one approach. There are other approaches. Uh, Miro takes a little bit of a learning curve, knowing how to use it. Uh, one could do a, a usability study on on that, but um, it's visually appealing. It's relatively clean and not too dense. So you know, I, I you, you knew you know from other coursework what a journey map was, uh, but you know, refresh myself with online resources that are mostly text describing with some pictures, and then just played around with the Miro template. Uh, likewise. RPO uh, knew a little bit about um, UX research uh, artifacts because she, you know, did I think it was a remote um, course on UX design uh, from the D school at Stanford, if I remember correctly. And she just shared out templates, and I, you know, looked and critiqued. Okay, what are the benefits of this? What what is it missing? And and you know, thought is this 
what our audience can use. And it turns out, um, you know, our empathy map template we used probably isn't the prettiest one out there, but it's simple and it's a good way to present those core ideas about what people are thinking, feeling, doing, and saying. And I mean, that, you know, for me, like the thinking and feeling to some extent saying was a bit of a judgment call, but, um, you know, I learned by looking at those templates, um, you know, kind of triangulating that, what I've read and learned in coursework over the years. And then, you know, how do people respond? Uh, you know, I, I do take feedback, you know, when people, do they engage with my artifacts or do they just sit there? Do they, you know, has anyone ever pointed out any major holes? You know, fortunately, it's been minor holes. Um, but it's... Um, you know, what questions do people ask? And that generally informs subsequent um, iterations, if you will, of those empathy maps, journey maps, um, even user flows of like, okay, what are people looking like? You know, when you have the, the classic, you know, template of a journey app, what are people really looking for? Um, what's important? And my perspective, I'm sure some other worthy, more experienced person could debate me and, you know, know more about this, but my perspective is at least, you know, your iteration here and now, it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to, you know, find the core things that your audience needs to know and to, to engage with visually and, and do that and iterate from there, you know, based on critiques or based on questions. The visual tools are meant to facilitate a conversation. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Similar to that, obviously, if you're building a team, there's some things to learn about that process. So for anybody out there who might be in a similar position where team of one, but they're starting to grow, what were your key takeaways from that experience? Um, sometimes you got to be fast and adaptable too. Um, this, the building of the team was part of an initiative, you know, initiatives coming out from that major client and they wanted us to build, you know, a team in a certain way. And, you know, I learned sometimes you, you want to do things a certain way, but when you're getting a lot of pressure to step on the gas, you have to balance, okay, the standard approach to hiring to, okay, what do we do? You know, what can we do in the time allotted? And I had to make judgment calls. Uh, so in some ways, our hiring process, uh, you know, we hired mid-level researchers and took on some interns. So I had to, you know, some of the researchers were interns. So I had to make up um, an internship program, you know, from not completely from scratch. We had a template in terms of a design internship, but how do I adapt that to get adequate training for, you know, some people might have taken coursework in UX research. I looked for as many anthropologists as I could um, and other social scientists. So they had talent for research, but how do you help them adapt to a tech environment? Um, and so, you know, I had to balance that pressure to, you know, get people in the door with, okay, how are we going to make sure if they're not perfect on paper, at least they have enough potential, um, you know, that it's as fair as can be and that they can grow into the space. And, you know, one thing I insisted on, even though I got some blowback for it is a research challenge. Now, this is a very controversial topic, I think. And if your research challenge takes you know, 40 hours, you're wrong. And if you're trying to get your candidates to hire, to solve your business problems, you're wrong. 
uh, what we did at Radiant was we uh, took a a local um, you know municipal service challenge that had nothing to do with our work. Asked people to spend about two hours on it, and I live with that because on the one hand we did not pay them to do this challenge, but you're getting a real demonstration of uh, you know work competence and professionalism, and so it balances out you know from those who might not might know their stuff and be great, have great potential, but are not perfect job interviewers or those who might not be as strong, but can talk the perfect game, you know, learn all of the jargon and say all the right words and talk smoothly. But, and I had a a candidate or two over the, you know, those months that did well in the interview, but then they didn't do so well in the research challenge. Um, So it's a sort of, in some ways, a more fair way of, you know, assessing people's potential through their actions. Um, and, and then, you know, I learned from that also that if, if one has more time for hiring, be more deliberate, you know, compare more candidates. Uh, I don't think there is a need for the sort of cumbersome process that you know, many companies have. Um, but there is a space for, you know, more deliberation, both on, you know, people's responses in interviews, um, how they do on a hopefully, you know, concise, uh, work example, um, to really, you know, think about not only just how good, uh, a person is at something, but to make, you know, an assessment on their potential fit based on at least a few factors and not just a hip shot judgment of, did I like this person in the interview? Yeah, well, very good feedback there and input for anybody who's sort of a team of one looking to grow. Um, so it sounds like you had a lot of great experience at Radiant Digital and that sounds like it really uh, helped kind of propel you forward now into Answer Lab. And so good yes. luck at Answer Lab. Thank you. You know, I've talked to a few people from Answer Lab uh, either on this podcast or just sort of offline. It sounds like a great place. So I wish you luck and it sounds like it would be a nice opportunity. Um, if people wanted to get in touch with you to learn a little bit more, where should they find you? Um, if you Google, um, search Racine Marcus Brown on LinkedIn, uh, I think I'm the, there's one or two Racine Browns. I think I'm the only Racine Marcus Brown on LinkedIn. Also, um, I respond pretty well to email. Uh, it's all under, um, caps Racine underscore Brown at yahoo.com. Uh, those are probably the two best ways to, um, to reach me. Well, Racine, thanks for coming on. Appreciate taking the time. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you all for listening to the Anthro to UX podcast. To learn everything you need to break into UX, visit anthrotoux.com. There you will find all the podcast episodes and career coaching resources. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.